Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, appeared for the third day of confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. If confirmed by the full Senate, she will be only the sixth woman to serve on the bench and the first African-American woman. She spoke about being, quote, the lucky inheritor of the civil rights dream. Thank you, Senator. Um, Well, first, let me just address my comments to you in your office, um, which is something that I've said um, in speeches because it speaks to um, who I am and what I value. Um, My parents grew up in Florida under lawful segregation. And what that means is that when they were coming through middle school and high school, um, they were not allowed to go to school with white students. This is um, in the era before uh, and right after the Brown versus the Board decision, there was lawful segregation in places in this country. And it was after that time that Dr. King made his famous comments that people uh, mention uh, about having a dream uh, where people can be judged by the, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I then was born in 1970. And the contrast between my reality growing up in Florida and my parents' reality growing up in Florida, like night and day in terms of the opportunities that were available to me that weren't available to um, Judge Motley, who is one of my um, role models in, in the law. And so what my being here, I think, is about at some level um, is about the, the progress that we've made in this country in a very short period of time, I would say. Seems like a long time, but one generation, we've gone from from the reality of my parents' upbringing to the reality of mine. And I do consider myself, having been born in 1970, to be the first generation to benefit from the civil rights movement, from the legacy of all of the work of so many people that went into changing the laws in this country so that people like me could have an opportunity to be sitting here before you today. What I would hope to bring to the Supreme Court um, is very similar to what uh, 115 other justices have brought, which is their life experiences their perspectives, and mine include being a trial judge, being an appellate judge, being a public defender, being a member of the Sentencing Commission, Um, in addition to my being a black woman, uh, lucky inheritor of the civil rights dream. And in my capacity as a justice, I would do what I've done for the past decade, which is to rule from a position of neutrality, 
to look carefully at the facts and the circumstances of every case without any agendas, without any uh, uh, attempt to push the law in one direction or the other, to look only at the facts and the circumstances, interpreting the law consistent with the Constitution and precedents, and to render rulings that I believe and that I hope that people would have confidence in. On the third day of the confirmation hearing for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, senators returned to the nominee's judicial philosophy and previous decisions over the past decade serving as a judge. Here's Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, the top Republican on the committee. Yesterday, you referred to your record of decisions as the best thing to look at when explaining and evaluating your nomination. But you also said that you haven't had enough cases involving constitutional law to develop a judicial philosophy. If you haven't had uh, to develop a philosophy for deciding cases yet, what else do you think would be helpful for us to look at? So respectfully, Senator, I do have a philosophy. The philosophy is my methodology. It is a philosophy that um, I have developed from practice. Um, Unlike some judges who come to appellate work from academia and who have some overarching theory of the law, I approach cases from experience, from practice, and consistent with my constitutional obligations. So my philosophy is one in which I look at cases impartially consistent with my independence as a judicial officer. I understand my limited role in the constitutional scheme and therefore take very seriously all of the constraints on the exercise of my authority that exist uh, in our uh, system. What that means is that at the beginning of every case, I am setting aside my personal views. I'm That's pers- the three steps you gave us? Yes, sir. That, yes. Uh, so you don't have to go into that. Let me go on then. Should the Supreme Court overrule a precedent when it is clear to the justices that the precedent was wrongly decided? Thank you, Senator. Stare decisis, which is the principle uh, that um, the Supreme Court uses at the outset. It's the sort of background rule of uh, judicial um, maintenance of precedence in order to have predictability, stability, Uh, in the law is the kind of principle that the court begins with when it is asked to overrule or uh, revisit a precedent. And the court has developed certain factors that it looks at before it actually undertakes to reverse a precedent. One of those factors is the view that the precedent it's reconsidering is wrong, but that's not the only factor. The court also uh, determines, in addition to whether or not the the prior precedent was egregiously wrong, the court has said, 
um, the court looks at whether there's been reliance on that prior precedent, whether the precedent is workable or has proven workable over time, whether the cases in the area uh, of the precedent have shifted such that the precedent itself is no longer on firm foundation, and whether there have been either new facts or a new understanding of the facts um, that give rise to a need to revisit the precedent. So it's not just um, a, a look at whether or not it's wrong, and it's important that the court take into account all of those factors because stare decisis, meaning uh, letting the precedent stand, is a very important pillar of the rule of law. When is it appropriate for a judge to impose a sentence enhancement under the guidelines? Thank you, Senator. The federal sentencing guidelines um, are crafted to assist courts in making sentencing determinations within the broad range that Congress prescribes for cases, for for crimes. So in the typical case, a defendant is convicted of some crime um, in the federal system. They're usually very serious crimes. And Congress will say, judge, you can give that person a sentence anywhere between zero and 20 years, for example. The sentencing guidelines are designed to set out a series of factors that judges should be looking at when they decide what they're going to sentence that particular person to. And those factors will be things like, if this is a violent crime, does the person have a weapon? If this is a violent crime, was there any injury? And so the judge is looking at these facts, in many cases horrible facts, and calculating the guidelines based on what we call enhancements. Each one of those different characteristics or conditions is an enhancement. So you ask, when is it important to, um, to for, when it's appropriate? Well, the judge, judge has to calculate the guidelines in every case. That's how we start the process. But under the statutes, in addition to calculating the guidelines with all of those enhancements, the way our system now works is you determine what the guideline range of punishment is going to be, and then Congress says you look at a series of other factors in addition to the guideline range. And at the end of the day, the judges in the system now are choosing sentences based on both the consideration of the guidelines and also the consideration of the statutory factors that Congress has put forward. Have you ever declined to impose an enhanced sentence on a defendant because you disagreed with the enhancement as a policy matter? Thank you, Senator. Um, yes, and the reason is because of Supreme Court case law concerning um, the way in which the guideline system operates. The Supreme Court 
has um, determined in a case we discussed yesterday that the guidelines are no longer binding on judges, meaning um, the guidelines you calculate, but you don't have to stay in the guideline range anymore. That was um, the Supreme Court's Booker case. In, and I can't remember if it's in that case or in subsequent case law, but the Supreme Court has also made clear that when you are calculating the guideline range in the new system that we're in right now, judges are free, they, the Supreme Court has said, to decide in particular cases whether as a quote-unquote policy matter they disagree with a particular enhancement. That is the state of the law. That is what the Supreme Court has said judges are permitted to do in cases. And so I have, in certain cases, given the way in which the guidelines are operating, the disparities that are created in cases, I have at times identified various enhancements that I have disagreed with as a policy matter because the Supreme Court has said that that's the authority of a sentencing judge in our system. On the issue of the judge's previous sentencing of child porn offenders, the hearing turned tense for the second day in a row. Here is South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. I have no doubt that you find child pornography disgusting as the rest of America. You're a mother. You seem to be a very nice person. Are you aware of how many images are out there on the Internet involving children and sexually compromising situations? Senator, I'm not aware of the numbers, but I've seen the images in and, my and there are disgusting, role right? Well, let me tell you the numbers. In 2021, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children cyber tip line received 29.3 million reports of apparent child sexual exploitation containing 85 million images, videos, and other files. That's in 2021. It's up. In 2019, it was less. So there's an epidemic of this on the Internet, that if you go out on the Internet, there are millions of pictures of kids being abused. When it comes to sentencing child pornography possession cases, do you routine, routinely discount the fact that a computer was used? Thank you, Senator, for allowing me to address um, this concern. The guidelines related to child pornography mm -hmm. were drafted at a time in which a computer was not used for the majority, if not almost all, of these kinds of horrible crimes. The guidelines have enhancements in them. In two areas that you said you disagree, what are those two areas? At the time that the guidelines were drafted, it was a, an aggravating factor, a substantial aggravating factor, to use a computer in order to distribute and disseminate the images because the ordinary crime was not committed by computer. So the Would you now agree with me that computers are sort of the venue of choice for child pornographer people? Yes, 
Senator. Okay, so here's my point. If you believe, as I do, the computer has uh, created a bigger demand, there are more photos out there because of the Internet, more websites uh, exposing this garbage, wouldn't you want to deter people from going down that road? Senator, this crime is among the most difficult. No, answer most- my question. Wouldn't you want to deter people from going down the road of using the computer that allows these people to have access to millions of photos because of the technology? I want those people deterred. Senator- so if you're listening to my voice today and you're on a computer looking at child pornography and you get caught, I hope you're in, your sentence is enhanced because the, the computer and the Internet is feeding the beast here, that all these images out there are going to be more over time because people use computers. Now, didn't you also say that the number of images should not be considered as a sentence enhancement? Senator, with respect to the computer, one of the most effective deterrents is one that I imposed in every case and that judges across the country impose in every case, which is substantial substantial supervision. Any of these defendants... You think it is a bigger deterrent to take somebody who's on a computer looking at sexual images of children in the most disgusting way is to supervise their computer habits versus putting them in jail? No, Senator, I didn't say versus. That's exactly what you said. I think the best way to deter people from getting on a computer and viewing thousands and hundreds and over time maybe millions the population as a whole of children being exploited and abused every time somebody clicks on is to put their ass in jail not supervise their computer usage senator i wasn't talking about um verses you just said you thought it was a deterrent to supervise them i don't think it's a deterrent i think the deterrent is putting them in jail the sentencing have a deterrent component Senator, would you let her respond? Yes. Does sentencing have a deterrent component? Yes, Senator. Deterrence is one of the purposes of punishment, and uh, Congress has directed courts to consider various means of achieving deterrence. One of them, as you said, is incarceration. Another, as I tried to mention, was substantial periods of supervision once the person... So if I could, may ask you, in your view, it's more of a deterrent to have somebody substantially supervised in terms of their computer use who's looking at child pornography than it is to put them in jail? Senator, I'm not saying it's more or less. That's exactly what you're saying. What, what What I'd like to point out is that if we're going to... If... Let me say it this way. Congress has authorized courts to use a number of different means to achieve the purposes of punishment. And one of them is an enhanced punishment by using a computer. The enhancement with respect to using a computer relates to the penalty in terms of Incarceration. And you you choose not to apply that in these cases. You've said that. I'll read you the quote. But you've decided not to apply the use of a computer as an enhancement. You've also said you're not going to hold the number of images that the person has looked at as a sentencing enhancement factor. Is that true? 
No, Senator. It's not the number of images that the person has looked at because we don't have that information. Well, it is it is the the number of images that they've either received or distributed well, that are well, that, you don't we don't know if they looked at them but you're not going to hold it against them that they received 10,000 images versus 100 That's not what I've said Senator Well here's what you said I've decided to apply my general policy disagreement with respect to those enhancements at least that is the computers and the number of images Folks, what she is saying, the reason she's always below the recommendation, I think, uh, is because she doesn't use the enhancements available to her. She takes them off the table. And I think that's a big mistake, Judge. Coming out of a break in the confirmation hearing for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, Republican Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley also focused on the judge's record in child porn cases. In this case, Chazen. Why did you sentence him to just 28 months? Senator, you're looking at the record. I don't have the record here. What I will say is that in every case, I looked at the recommendations of not only the government, but also the probation office, the defendant, the record, the evidence. I took into account the seriousness of the offense. And by, by the way, you know, ruled. one of the striking things in Chazen, the prosecutor comes in front of you and says, this is the prosecutor's argument at this point. And the prosecutor says, I understand from my experience before your honor, your honor's objection, policy objections, to the to the 2G 2.2 sentencing guidelines. And he goes on to say, however, in this case in particular, the four-point specific offense characteristic is justified because it contains sadomasochistic images of infants, and toddlers. I'm trying to understand how you see someone that possesses images of infants and toddlers being sexually violated and you sentence them to 64% below what the prosecutor is asking for. You don't provide a justification other than a generic concern that the guidelines are too high. You don't provide a justification as required by statute. So I'm asking you, to take the opportunity to explain to this committee and the American people why in 100% of the cases you have people with vile crimes, and you have language saying they're vile crimes, but then you sentence them to very, very low sentences. And, and why do you consistently 100% of the time choose to do that? Senator, no one case can stand in for a judge's entire sentencing record. I've sentenced more than 100 people. You have eight or nine cases okay. in that chart. Okay, Judge, you said that before. The, these are the eight or nine child porn cases. I will say to correct the record. I just say about, to the judge, there's no point in responding. He's going to interrupt you. I, Thank you. Look, I appreciate the chairman trying to filibuster. And if you don't like your witnesses' answers, you're, you're welcome to provide your own. Uh, she, she is declining to answer the question. And, and Chairman Durbin, if you want to join her on the, on the, on the bench, you can. But I, Chairman Durbin... Uh, my job is to make Chairman sure Durbin, I'm not interrupting your questioning. I'm and, asking you to give her a chance to answer. But she has consistently said she's not going to answer. I want to clarify for the record, by the way, the case I was discussing was Cooper and not Chazen. Uh, but Chazen is uh, – the case that I was reading from your transcript was Cooper, but Chazen – all right, let's get to Chazen. I pulled the wrong tab. Uh, Chazen is equally horrifying. And, and you say in Chazen – this is something Senator Graham asked you. So the guidelines lay out different 
enhancements, and, and you say repeatedly, and this is true in all your cases, you say you disagree with the guidelines, you think they're wrong. And the two guidelines you disagree with is, one, there's an enhancement for use of a computer, and you say the world has changed, and now all of these are on a computer. And I understand that. I don't agree with you, but I understand that. That is an understandable thing to say. But the second thing you say over and over again is there's an enhancement for the number of images. And you say repeatedly, for example, in, in Chazen, you say, whatever the state of the law and technology at the time of the guidelines were first adapted, neither the use of the computer nor the number of images are especially aggravating factors today. Now, I find that bizarre. And you say it in, in every case. You say the number of images, it's not an aggravating factor, it doesn't matter, and you won't apply the enhancement. Do you really believe that, that a predator that has hundreds or thousands of images of hundreds or thousands of children being sexually violated has not committed an offense that, that is more serious than someone that has a single picture of a single child? A single picture of a single child is horrifying. But hundreds of children that have been violated, do you really believe that is not a more serious offense? Senator, I did not have any cases involving hundreds of thousands of pictures. No, no I said hundreds and or thousands. You had, you had cases involving hundreds and you had cases involving thousands. You're right, you didn't have hundreds of thousands. And I also applied an enhancement, just not to the degree of the guidelines. You're so right. I, it's a, it's a five-point enhancement under the guidelines. You provide two. Yes, so um, not zero, okay, not, right, not the but, suggestion but, that but I did. are you suggesting the number of images doesn't matter? Because you say it in court over and over again that the number of images doesn't reflect that it's a more serious crime. Do, do you really believe that? Yes, let me ask you about the Hawkins case. You and I talked about this yesterday. You've been able to think about it overnight. This is a case where you had an 18-year-old who possessed and distributed hundreds of images of eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds, and you gave him, frankly, a slap on the wrist sentence of three months. Senator, Do you I regret it? I don't remember whether it was um, distribution or possession in it the was law. Both. Do you regret it? In, in the law, there are different uh, crimes that people commit Judge, in you gave this him area. three months. My question is, do you regret it or not? Senator, what... I regret is that in a hearing about my qualifications to be a justice on the Supreme Court, we've spent a lot of time focusing on this small subset of my sentences, and I've tried to explain. You regret that many we're focusing time. on your cases? I don't understand. No, you. no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that you're talking about Child pornography seven cases? very serious cases. I'm glad we agree on that. Don't you some, think we should be some, focusing on some of which, Some of which involve conduct that I sentence people to 25, 30 years. Three months before. in this case, Judge. Do you regret it? You haven't answered my question yet. Senator, Do you regret the sentence? Senator, I would have to look at the circumstances what I'm telling you... You you know the circumstances. We discussed it for half an hour yesterday. There's a 55-page transcript, which I'm sure you've read. You I lived it. Not, As you've not. emphasized to this committee over and over, you've lived it, right? You said that you've been through all of this. You've looked at all of the images. You're the one who's had to endure all of it. You gave him a three-month sentence. I just wonder if you regret it or if you stand by it. I mean, do you stand by that sentence? Senator, in every case, I followed what Congress authorized me to do in looking to the best of my ability at all of the various factors that apply, that constrain judges, that give us discretion, but also tell us 
how to sentence. And I ruled in every case based on all of the relevant factors. So you don't regret it? No one case, Senator, can stand in for a judge. I'm not asking that. I'm asking if you regret this sentence in this case. And it sounds like the answer is no. But I want to tell you I regret it. I regret that you gave him only three months. Let me read to you what you said about these kinds of cases. In fact, to this defendant, you said, make no mistake, Mr. Hawkins, the children you saw in those pictures were not willing participants in the conduct that you witnessed. They were being forced to commit unspeakable acts of sexual violence for the pleasure of the person who was filming and for the gratification of sick people everywhere, people who apparently have no shred of empathy for what this must be doing to the children who are being abused in this way. You go on. Some of the children you saw in those pictures will never, never have an adult, a normal adult relationship. Some of them will turn to drugs and prostitution and other vices to try to deal emotionally with the pain that results from the torture that they have experienced. And even those who manage to lead a somewhat normal adult life say they live in constant fear of being recognized. Some people are even unable to leave their houses because once those pictures are on the Internet, they are there forever. And the victims can't do anything without worrying that every person that they meet has seen them in their most vulnerable state at the most horrible time in their lives. That's your words, pages 34 and 35 of the transcript. Powerful words, Judge. I just don't understand why after saying this and believing this, you could give this guy three months in prison when the probation office that we've heard so much about recommended 18 months. Even the probation office recommended 18 months. Do you have anything to add? No, Senator. Let me ask you about your policy of not giving enhancements when there are prepubescent children like there were in the Hawkins case who are 8, 9, 10 years old, when there are prepubescent children involved. I'm just struggling to understand this. You said it in Hawkins. You said that you weren't going to give him an enhancement. You weren't going to give, make his sentence any tougher, despite the fact that we had all of these terrible videos that you and I talked about at length yesterday. This is page 38 of the transcript, just so that we're all following along. You said, in your case, I don't feel that it is appropriate necessarily to increase the penalty on the basis of your use of a computer, and we've talked about that, or the number of images or prepubescent victims, as the guidelines require, Because these circumstances exist in many cases, if not most, and they don't signal an especially heinous or egregious child pornography offense. You said the same thing in the Cooper case just last year. This was an individual, Cooper, who was 30 years old at the time of his sentencing. He pleaded guilty to distributing child pornography. He posted between three and four dozen images of child exploitation to Tumblr, where it could be accessed publicly, The government said, and I'll quote from the transcript in that case, page 37, when his devices were found, including the computer, within the computer and on an untitled folder were many, many, many videos. The nature of these videos went well beyond mere child pornography. The government says, I don't mean to make light of the content of any child pornography, but rather to say that the content of those videos is on the more egregious or extreme spectrum of the child pornography videos that are encountered in these cases. And yet, when you sentenced him, you said, I'm quoting now from the transcript in Cooper, I'm really reluctant to get into the nature of the porn. And then later, it's very difficult to assess 
how different Mr. Cooper's images are than those of other similarly situated child pornography defendants, rather, such that I, without going into looking at them, and I'm not an expert, you say. So you say, while I understand the government's arguments, Mr. Miranda, the government's arguments in that regard, I don't find them persuasive from the standpoint of characterizing this as an especially egregious child pornography offense. Help me understand this, Judge. Why is it that you, what's your policy disagreement with the guidelines treating images, videos, pornographic images that have small children, infants, seven, eight, nine-year-olds? Why won't you give an enhancement for those? Help me understand that. Thank you, Senator. I'll make two responses. First, that's not my policy disagreement. I don't know why you've characterized that in that way. Well, wait a minute, I wait have... a minute. You say, you say right here in the cases, I mean, this is, this is the, well, I want to get, I want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing here. This, in the Hawkins case, I don't feel that it's appropriate necessarily to increase the penalty on the basis of your use of a computer or the number of images or prepubescent victims. And you say the same thing in Cooper. Senator, two observations. One, I am sentencing in every case. I have policy disagreements with certain aspects of the operation of the guidelines that I lay out in every case as Congress has required and as the Supreme Court permits in light of my experience, not only as a district judge, but also on the Sentencing Commission, which did a report about the operation of the guidelines. Second, you've read extensively from the government's argument in this case. You've not provided information from the probation office or the defense. And I, when I a don't judge, have the probation office report. No, excuse me, Senator. The probation office provides a, a recommendation. There has been information gathered about what a recommendation was given in each one of these cases. I don't have that information here, but what I'm saying is that in every case, the judge is not just hearing from the government. The, the, the judge is not just evaluating what the government says in these cases. In every criminal case, a judge has to take into account all sorts of factors, including arguments being made by the defendant, by the government, by the probation office. So I understand that in certain cases, the government may have made an argument, but there are other people in our criminal justice system who make arguments, and the court evaluates everything as Congress has directed, and no one case can stand in for my entire record of how I deal with criminal cases or did when I was a district judge. I have law enforcement in my family. I am a mother who has daughters who took these cases home with me at night because they are so graphic in terms of the kinds of images that you are describing. They give you not only the actual videos, which you can ask to see, but they describe in the briefs, in detail, what these videos show. So I am fully aware of the seriousness of this offense and also my obligation to take into account all of the various aspects of the crime as Congress has required me to do, and I made a determination seriously 
in each case. Later in the day, Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, addressed Republicans' concerns over not having access to pre-sentencing reports from several child porn cases overseen by Judge Jackson. Review this letter for the first time just a minute ago. Uh, there is a, apparently a concern on your side, Mr. Chairman, about whether you have on your side of the aisle access to all the information that we have on this side of the aisle and all the information that's in the possession of the White House. During uh, a break earlier today, I met with the ranking member, Senator Grassley, his staff, and with White House staff to discuss it. Here's my understanding of what has transpired. Last Wednesday evening, the senator from Missouri selected a handful of Judge Jackson's more than 1,000 district court cases to claim that Judge Jackson, quote, endangers our children, close quote. On Thursday, the next day, the White House contacted Judge Jackson's chambers to request the probation office recommendation in each of the cases. I, I you know, underline probation office. That probation office provided a chart reflecting these recommendations. This is the sum total of what was provided. They shared with the White House from the chambers when the senator from Missouri continued to raise questions and request the probation office's recommendation in these cases, the probation office provided this chart reflecting those recommendations which were shared with the White House. When the senator from Missouri continued to raise questions about Judge Jackson's sentencing record, my staff asked the White House for information about the probation office recommendations. These are just numbers for each one of the cases. That's all that is. The White House and my office didn't have this information earlier because we didn't know the senator from Missouri was going to make this claim in the first place. Once the Republican side requested the same information, my staff shared it within minutes. So now your side, Senator, has exactly what the White House and the Democratic side has, the same chart provided by the probation office. Uh, and I might add that some of this had been published in the press in Washington Post and other places, but it consists in each case of the case number, name, uh, the probation office recommendation for custody, the sentence imposed custody, probation office recommended supervision and release, and the supervision and release imposed. All of that information has now been shared equally. Some information on the other side, on the Republican side, includes frequent reference to transcripts, which we don't have on this side. And the reason being we didn't anticipate this objection from the senator from Missouri and request that information. Now, the letter also goes a step beyond, which I think is a very important decision for this committee to make. This request for pre-sentence reports from each of these cases. Now, these pre-sentence reports are typically filed under seal. They can contain highly sensitive personal information, not just about the defendant, but about innocent third parties and victims. We've spent a lot of time here reflecting on these terrible crimes. Everyone has acknowledged how terrible they are and how damaging they can be to the victims. We have heard story after story, and I don't question a single word that was spoken in sympathy for these same victims. I would not want it weighing on my conscience that we are turning over these pre-sentence reports to this committee for the first time in history, and that information out of this or because it was released 
would somehow compromise or endanger any victim as a result of it. This information was not requested before. It's never been requested by this committee. And I think we ought to think long and hard about whether or not we even consider going into pre-sentence reports. So I'm going to take this matter up with our side, and I'm sure you will with your side. I have your letter requesting it. As far as this information, you have exactly what we have, no more, no less. In terms of pre-sentence reports, this is a critical policy question, which ought to be carefully weighed. It goes way beyond, I'm sorry, Senator uh, Judge Jackson, it goes way beyond your nomination. And I want to make certain that we don't take a step here that endangers the lives or well-being of innocent people. Mr. Chairman. Uh, since you just responded to the letter that I wrote and was submitted on behalf of, of 10 senators, uh, I will point out that in Judge Jack Jackson's answer to Senator Hawley, she said that he and this committee did not have sufficient information to assess her sentencing decisions because we heard the arguments of the prosecutors in the transcript, but we did not have the recommendation from the probation office. And what she testified under oath is you can't understand what, why she I issued her sentences without having those probation reports. You are right that there can be sensitive victim information in those reports, and, and everyone on this side, I'm confident, uh, would agree to redacting out any information that, that would violate the privacy of a victim. But Judge Jackson has told us it is relevant to understanding those cases, and, and that's why 10 of us have requested we have those reports, and there's explicit statutory authority for us to do so that is cited uh, in the letter we just submitted. Senator, I don't know where other members of your caucus stand on the basic question of this nomination. They can decide on their own, and they will, and they should. That is their responsibility. I think I know where you're headed. And I would just suggest that we ought to think long and hard, my friends, about members of the Judiciary Committee endangering the lives of innocent people to pursue this line of questioning. We spent two days, 15, 16, 17, 18 hours, and a large part of it on this issue. I don't believe these pre-sentencing reports are going to change anyone's disposition if they're going to vote on this issue. And I, I do not want it weighing on my conscience that I gave the green light to release this information so that it might endanger the lives of innocent victims. I'm sorry. That's a bridge too far for me. I think the issue before us on sentencing, you each had a chance to hear plenty of testimony on it. And I, I believe this should be taken up with the individual caucuses on both sides, if you wish. But uh, that, to me, is it's gone way too far, way too far. I don't want it on my conscience. Mr. Mr. Chairman, if I might, one, I agree with you, I've prosecuted literally thousands of people. Uh, I would have to go back and see over eight years. I can't, I can't remember the hundreds of sentencings uh, I was at where we had pre-sentence reports over and over again. There were things in there that were sensitive, sometimes reflecting somebody who were putting their lives on the line to even give a report. Uh, Neither the defense counsel nor I as a prosecutor ever thought those would be made public. And we assumed the, the judges, we had judges across the political uh, stripes who read them, kept the confidence of that. 
as a result, we knew that the reports were, were thorough. Um, and a judge has the final say, but as a prosecutor, I might have a recommendation, but I never question a judge who might give a different um, sentence because my, my responsibility as prosecutor, theirs was the sentence. Senator Lee. Yeah, might I just uh, weigh in here? I, I totally understand the concern that you're describing relative to the confidential nature of pre-sentence reports. As a prosecutor and as a law clerk, I reviewed those with some regularity, and I understand the sensitivity of them. Let me suggest a couple of things. First of all, it's not unusual for us as a committee and as members of the United States Senate to review materials that would be inappropriate for public release. I don't think one of us is suggesting that. Um, uh, there are means by which we can review things in a classified environment and treat them as classified. We've done that with, uh, with, with significant success in this hearing. Secondly, to the extent that wouldn't provide the level of comfort necessary, we'd also be happy to review them on a redacted basis. Um, the, these are things that have become relevant in our conversations. We want to make sure that we, we have the facts. But not one of us wants to endanger anyone or to, to uh, render public information uh, that is sensitive in nature. There, there are abundant ways around that. I would suggest that the information contained in these reports is dangerous, dangerous to the victims and to the innocent people who are mentioned in these reports and unnecessary at this point. It's never been requested by this committee, and it's merely a fishing ex expedition in dangerous territory. Classified settings, redacted versions of the reports, this has never happened in the history of this committee. And I would say, Senator, Senator, I, I will just tell you, I am not going to be party to turning over this information and endangering the life of an innocent person for a political quest to find more information. We have exhausted this topic. We've gone to it over and over again. And I think that this is a bridge too far for this committee. That's my personal feeling. I take it that Senator Leahy may agree with me in that regard. Uh, this uh, nominee has been before this committee for 18 hours. I don't believe that uh, this information is going to change anyone's vote. Uh, you can decide in your caucus what you want to do to go forward. I've told you my position. I want to proceed if I can. I thank the, Senator, the nominee for waiting for this colloquy, and I turn it over to Senator Cotton. A reminder that all of day three of the confirmation hearing for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is available at cspan.org or our free mobile app, C-SPAN Now. During the afternoon of day three of the Supreme Court confirmation hearing for Judge Jackson, she was asked about a federal case involving affirmative action in higher education. You're at my alma mater, Harvard, uh, is currently being sued for its explicit and, in my view, egregious policy of discriminating against Asian Americans. Uh, even though I think that policy is egregious, I, as an individual plaintiff, could not bring a lawsuit challenging it uh, because I am not Asian-American. Is that right? If you brought a lawsuit, um, the court would have to evaluate whether you had an actual injury in order to be able to determine whether it had subject matter jurisdiction to hear the suit. But, but if I'm not in the class being discriminated <clears throat> against, then I don't have the ability to bring the lawsuit. Is that right? I think I, you'd have to have an actual injury. Certainly people, I think, who are in the class could claim that they had an injury for that purpose. 
So now you're you're on the board of overseers of Harvard. If you're confirmed, do you intend to recuse from this lawsuit? That is my plan, Senator. Other issues addressed at day three of the confirmation hearing for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson included constitutional limits on executive power and adding more justices to the Supreme Court. Uh, you, in uh, opinion that has been widely cited, made the observation that presidents are not kings. What does that mean, and what are some of the most important bulwarks in our constitutional system against the abuse of executive power, against tyranny? Thank you, Senator. Our constitutional scheme, the design of our government, is erected to prevent tyranny. The framers decided after experiencing monarchy, tyranny, and the like, that they were going to create a government that would split the powers of a monarch in several different ways. One was federalism. It was vertical. They would split the powers between the federal government and states. Another was to prevent the federal government from itself becoming too powerful, from having all of uh, the authorities, from having legislative, executive, and judicial authority concentrated in one place. So the Constitution, in its design, puts the legislative authority in Article I and gives it to the Congress, the power to make laws. It puts the executive authority in Article II and gives it to the president, the power to execute the laws. And it puts the judicial authority, the power to interpret the laws, in Article III and gives it to the court. The separation of powers is crucial to liberty. It is what our country is founded on, and it's important as consistent with my judicial methodology, for each branch to operate within their own sphere. That means for me that judges can't make law. Judges shouldn't be policymakers. That's a part of our constitutional design, and it prevents our government from being too powerful and encroaching on individual liberty. Senator Kennedy was asking you about the... uh expanding the court, or what we call court packing. You said, I haven't really thought about it, but I hear the arguments on both sides. And I I hear the argument on both sides. So could you briefly describe to me your perception of the arguments on both sides? My understanding um, of the argument is about whether or not to expand Uh, the court beyond the nine uh, justices that are on the court right now, the the nine seats that are there. Um, And if you you were to view, I mean, right now it's nine is fine, four or more. I mean, that's really the the two arguments. So do you understand or have you heard any of the arguments for or against either side? I'm not even sure about the four. I've just heard people talking about – putting more justices on the court, um, expressing concerns that the court has become politicized, that 
the court has become unbalanced in terms of uh, what people perceive to be views of the majority of the justices. And so I've heard arguments about rebalancing uh, the court on that side. And then there's the argument that many uh, on on the dais uh, have uh, stated about the inappropriateness of doing so, the concern that it might uh, lead to um, some kind of a, a war of <laughs> every time uh, there's a new president adding justices to the court. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, spent some of his 20 minutes of time with Judge Jackson focusing on a previous immigration decision that was later overturned. You said uh, just a bit ago that you apply the law and the facts and call them as you see them. Is that right? That is correct, Senator. Okay, and you look at the statute as the way it's written and you try to apply it in its plain meaning. Is that correct? That is correct, Senator. Have you heard of a case called uh, Make the Road versus McAleen? Make the Road New York, yes. Yeah, okay. Make the Road in New York, who are they? Um, Make the Road New York is a nonprofit that uh, represents um, various individuals in the sort of immigration law field. They're a nonprofit advocacy group for immigration issues. Did you know they received large donations from the Arabella Network and from George Source's Open Society Foundation Network? No. Okay. Well, they did. Uh, Now, in that case, what was the issue? The issue in that case was a challenge to a change in administration policy concerning um, expedited removal, which is a uh, policy that Congress enacted Mm -hmm. in order to um, expedite certain removals in the immigration system. Ordinarily, um, before expedited removal... Asylum cases do not fall in this category, right? Well, t- trust me on that because the statute says it doesn't. If a person who could otherwise be subject to expedited removal makes and has a credible fear of torture in their mm-hmm. country, they can be and can they make that determined? Claim? They right. can be determined right. uh, to qualify for regular removal yeah. rather than right. expedited removal. So expedited removal is a Creature of Congress, folks. And if you've been here two years or less, the statute, the, the statute, I'm sorry, the statute. The statute would allow the administration and office to have expedited removal, avoiding a lot of the, the hurdles that would exist otherwise for people here two years or less. So in the Obama uh, even Bush years, they did not look at it in terms of applying it to everybody. Some people coming by air got expedited removal, others didn't. The Trump administration decided to use the authority given to it by Congress to remove all eligible cases two years or less under the expedited removal statute. Is that a fair summary? 
Well, Senator, I would um, say say it differently. We'll say it differently. All right. Um, the statute that you've put up indicates that Congress is giving the department, it, it says the Attorney General, but now it's the department, right. the ability to determine what category of aliens. If you have two years or less. Yeah, but, but, but importantly, um, the authority was, it was not Congress saying two years or less. What Congress said is, you agency have the authority to determine what category of persons between, who, who have been here between zero and 24 months. Which is two be. years, yeah. No, but what, <laughs> forgive so, me, Senator, I'm just, what I'm trying to explain is that the authority given to the agency was to determine what length they of had time discretion to make that what decision. what length of time it was not the authority to deport everyone who's been here for 24 months it was the authority to determine what length of time a person has to be here in order to be subjected to expedited removal here's what the statute said the attorney general which is actually the DHS secretary may apply clauses one and two of this subparagraph to any and all aliens described in subclass two as designated by the Attorney General, actually DHS, such designation shall be in the sole and unrevealable discretion of the Attorney General and may be modified at any time. Now, I've been in this business for quite a while. What the Trump administration did was to use the discretion given to it by statute in a way different than prior administrations. This advocacy group, the Arabella-supported advocacy group, tried to strike it down. You rule for them. Here's what the D.C. Circuit Court said about your ruling. There could hardly be a more definitive expression of congressional intent to leave the decision about the scope of expanded removal within statutory bounds to the Secretary's independent judge, judgment. The forceful phrase, sole and unreviewable discretion, buys exceptional terms. Such designation shall be in the sole and unreviewable discretion of the Attorney General and may be modified at any time. To those of us in the law writing business, I don't know how you could tell a judge more clearly that the administration, the agency in question, has discretion to do certain things within the statute. So this is an example to me, and you may not agree, where the plain language of the statute was completely wiped out by you. You reached a conclusion because you disagreed with the Trump administration, and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said as I've quoted just a minute ago, there could hardly be a more definitive expression of congressional intent to leave the decision about the scope of expedited removal within the statutory bounds to the Secretary's independent judgment. That, to me, is Exhibit A of activism. Let's go back to the child pornography cases. Senator, would you allow me to... Yes, please. Thank you. 
the statute and the circumstances that you reference are accurate insofar as that is what the statute says. It's not all of it. It doesn't describe the designation process that I was trying to articulate. And uh, it doesn't address the fact that Congress has another statute that is presumptively applied in agency cases to tell agencies how to exercise discretion. There's also DC Circuit case law that says that in addition to having that procedural statute be presumptive, even very clear uh, designations of authority to an agency may still be subject to Congress's other directions regarding how to exercise the discretion. That argument fell on deaf ears. Understood. That's that's our appellate process. I've got other things I want to talk about. You've given an explanation, but it didn't work. The D.C. Circuit of Court said there could hardly be a more definitive expression of congressional intent. This is good as it gets. There's no way to write a statute saying discretion lies in an agency. It's sole. It's non-reviewable. So you're not convincing me that With this respect, was anything Senator. other than act- activism, and we can talk about it all day long, but I, DC, I agree with the D.C. court. This, to me, is an example, Exhibit A, of a judge ignoring limitations placed in the law by Congress to get a result they wanted. After more than eight hours into the confirmation hearing, New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker took his 20 minutes to defend Judge Jackson's record. But sit back for a second, because uh, I don't have questions right away. I actually have a number of things I, I just want to say, because this has been uh, not a surprise, given the history that we all know, not a surprise, but uh, perhaps a little bit of a disappointment, uh, some of the things that have been said in, in this hearing. Uh, the way you have dealt with some of these things, um, that's why you are a judge and I am a politician, because you have sat with grit and grace and have shown us just extraordinary uh, demeanor uh, during the times where people were saying things to you that are actually out of the norm. I had to go up dais uh, to ask some of my more senior colleagues about the, what I feel like is a dangerous precedent. People are taking uh, a thousand cases you've been o- over. Is that right? I'm sorry. I said you wouldn't ask you questions, but just give me a... Some, something like that. Something like that. And from what I understand is that these cases are often takes take days, weeks, sometimes months, right? To, to, to decide to in a st- case? Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's a trial sometimes. And the folks are taking any of those cases and just trying to pick pieces out. And so uh, my, my colleague, Senator Hawley, has been doing this all into the lead up and saying things, tweeting things, that I think that a lot of us, when I was just trying to get some advice here, is this is what the new standard is going to be. That any judge coming before us that has ever chosen outside of the sentencing guidelines, below the sentencing guidelines, we're creating this environment now where I could make myself the hero of people who have been victims of some horrible crime and suddenly put whatever judge I want on the defensive by trying to drag out little bits when they have no context to the case. None of the facts. They're seeking to exploit the complexities of a criminal justice system, the reason why we have a third branch of government. I I feel bad that there was a judge mentioned by name in this hearing that's uh, uh, from Senator Hawley's state. What is that judge going to think next time they they have a complicated sexual abuse case that comes before them? 
and they know that they could possibly be called out if they go below the sentencing guidelines, which I showed you yesterday in my lack of chart. If you remember, I was uncharted. Um, <laughs> but that you are deciding completely in the norm. 70 plus percent in many states are people are doing just like you did. But I'm a, I'm a Democratic senator. I, 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 I've never quoted from this very well-respected conservative a periodical. This is the National Review. Very well-respected. They're not, not necessarily something I agree with all the time. But here's what the National uh, Review, this is the title. Senator Hawley's disingenuous attack against Judge Jackson's record on child pornography. I'll just read the first paragraph. I would oppose Judge Katanji uh, Brown Jackson because of her judicial philosophy for the reasons I outlined last week. I addressed that in a separate post. For now, I want to dis- discuss the claim by Senator Josh Hawley that Judge Jackson is appallingly soft on child pornography offenders. This is the kicker here. The allegations appear meritless to the point of demagoguery. I, I, I got letters from leaders of victims' rights groups, survivors of assault, all saying sort of the same thing with the National Review. Feel proud about yourself. You brought together right and left in this, in this, in this calling out of people that will sit up here and try to pull out from cases and try to put themselves in a position where they're the defenders of our children to a person who has children, to a person whose family goes out in streets and defends children. I, I mean, this is a, a new, new low. And what's especially surprising about this is it didn't happen last year. You were put on a court that I'm told is the, considered like the second most powerful court in our land. And you were passed with bipartisan support. Nobody brought it up then. Did they not do their homework? Were they lax? Did they make a mistake? I wonder, as they ask you the question, do you regret? I wonder if they regret that, that they didn't bring that out. No. Why? Because it was an allegation that is meritless to the point of demagoguery. You are, I don't mean this in any way, because if anybody called me average, I would, I would be upset, but you are a, a mainstream judge. Your sentencing, I've looked at the data, falls in the mainstream on everything from child sexual assault to all the other issues that people are trying to bring up. Some of these things are being cast at you that you called George Bush a war criminal. Come on, that is painful. Especially because, as you said, the brief change. These are names that you have to put in. And we're talking about a real issue that goes to the core of our values, torture. Barack Obama was named once he, once Bush left office. There is an absurdity to this that is, it, it, it is almost comical if it was not so dangerous. Because the next time a judge comes before us on the right or the left that has a body of work like you do, gosh, one of the, uh, some performance artists on our side could pull out 
one of the cases where they were below the sentencing guidelines, say, for example, it was on something like as horrific as rape that we all agree is horrific, and they can suddenly put themselves as the defense. How dare we put someone who's soft on crime? Well, are you soft on crime? God bless America. I got this great text. I've become really good friends with the, the folks at the FOP for my negotiations. And this was my favorite text. You all got to get this. I think my brother Kennedy might get a kick out of this. He goes, things that are uncountable, stars in the sky, grains of sand on the beach, and the number of times Democrats will mention that the FOP endorsed <laughs> Judge Jackson in this hearing. <laughs> but let me mention it again. <laughs> Just in case my people say you're rough on crime, folks, really want to try to make that stick. You were endorsed by the largest organization of rank-and-file police officers. You were endorsed by the bosses, the largest organization of chiefs of police. And, and you were endorsed by Noble, who I hope people find out more about that organization. You got uncles that are officers. You got a brother, not just an officer, who went to serve after 9-11. Your family's not soft on terrorism. He went out there to capture and kill and defend this country from terrorists. I, I, I actually sitting back here and finding this astonishing, but then I, I do my homework. I, I love that my colleague brought up Constance Baker Motley. You know, when, when, when she was getting to the floor of the Senate, they were trying to stop her with outrageous accusations. You know what the accusation was back then? She was a communist. Dragging up stories, trying to throw anything that they might stick. But this is what you and I know. Any one of us senators could yell as loud as we want that Venus can't return a serve. We could yell as loud as we want that Beyonce can't sing. We could yell as much as we want that astronaut Mae Jamison didn't go all that high. But you know what? They got nothing to prove. As it says in the Bible, let the work I've done speak for me. Well, you have spoken. You started speaking as a little girl, watching that man right there try to raise a family and study law while your mama supported everybody. You spoke in high school when you started distinguishing yourself and you know what you said when they told you you couldn't go to Harvard? Watch me. I went to law school. I didn't serve on the law review. You did. I didn't clerk at every level of the federal court. You clerked for a Supreme Court justice, one widely respected on both sides, which really shaped you. You left there, and, and, and you went to private practice, and you know what you found? This is what you told me. That you had those tough choices that working moms have to make, the demands of a private law firm, raising your kids. It, it just didn't add up. You went before the Senate three times in a bipartisan manner. God bless America. We don't do that much stuff bipartisan around here. You went to become a public defender because you wanted to understand all aspects of the law. Who does that? We live in a society that's very materialistic sometimes, very, very consumeristic. You went into, do people become public defenders for the money? No. Your family and you speak to service, service, service. 
And I'm telling you right now, I'm not letting anybody in the Senate steal my joy. <laughs> I told you this at the beginning. I, I have, I, I'm embarrassed. It happened earlier today. I just look at you and I, I start getting full of emotion. I'm jogging this morning and I'm at the end of the block I live on. And I get terrible because I put my music on loud when I'm jogging, <laughs> trying to block out the noise of the, of the heart attack I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> and this woman comes up on me, practically tackles me, an African-American woman. And the look on her eyes, she just wanted to touch me because I think because I'm sitting so close to you. <laughs> and tell me what it meant to her to watch you sitting where you're sitting. If you missed any of the confirmation hearing for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, you can watch it in its entirety on our website, cspan.org, or on the free mobile app, C-SPAN Now.